Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegich. For this episode, we're going to do something that may shock you. We're going to revisit 2020. I know, it sounds painful, but trust me, this will be a pleasant and interesting journey. Yes, 2020 was awful, but looking back on the 28 episodes we produced last year reminded me that it wasn't all bad. Our guests offered hope, perspective, humor, and beauty. We had difficult conversations about some of the most difficult issues facing our country and our world. We also talked about new and innovative paths forward that provide hope that our best days are still to come. With that, we're going to take a look back at just some of our favorite moments from the past year. Before each clip, I'll tell you who the guest is, what episode it came from, and I'll try to set it up with additional context. And don't worry, today's podcast webpage has links to the episodes, so you can always go back and listen to them all. To start us out, we're going to revisit our 100th episode, a milestone that warranted an all-star guest and food writer, cookbook author, and restaurateur, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, delivered. I asked him how he went from a budding scientist at MIT to a restaurateur and entrepreneur. Well, my, you know, my, my father is American from Western Pennsylvania. He grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and uh, my mother is Japanese, so she moved to the U.S. Uh, when she was 16 years old. That's the, the Japanese Kenji, um, which is actually my middle name. My first name is James. I ne- I've never gone by James, though, but um, that's where the Japanese first name and the, and alt, the German last name. My family, my, so my father was a scientist and my grandfather on my mother's side was a scientist as well. You know, I grew up with my grandparents and my parents. Uh, and so science is just kind of a, a common language of communication and thought within our house. Mm. You know, I, and my mom was sort of a typical Japanese mom. She, she, she pushed us very hard as kids um, academically and, um, you know, made us all practice violin and all those, all those things that moms do. I ended up going to MIT because I thought I was going to uh, be a scientist. Biology actually was what my um, my original major was. Um, and I had spent a couple summers working in a biology lab in high school and then summer after my freshman year in college as well. And then by the time I got to sophomore year and I was taking organic chemistry, which is one of the requirements for biology, I really disliked organic chemistry. Even, even though my grandfather was actually an organic chemist, but I really disliked the class. <laughs> And then it actually made me sort of stop and start thinking about whether I was actually enjoying biology, you know, whether I enjoyed the two summers I had spent working in a lab. And I sort of realized then that I actually didn't really enjoy the process of biology either. The, the lab work wasn't something that I really enjoyed. It was just a little too slow paced. So the summer after my sophomore year, I, when I sort of was not really sure what I wanted to do, I decided not to work in a lab and instead um, spend the summer working as a server, like a waiter at a, at a restaurant in Boston, but I couldn't find a job as a, as a server. What ended up happening was I actually sort of accidentally walked into a job as a cook because one of the restaurants I went to looking for a job as a server said that they had a prep cook who didn't show up that morning. And so they were short one prep cook. And if I could come in that afternoon and start cooking, 
start doing prep work that I could have a job for the summer. And so that's what I did. Um, I had zero experience in the kitchen, zero real desire. I never really thought about working in kitchens. I was, it was just like, oh, okay, well, that's a skill I don't have. That'll be a fun and interesting thing, hopefully fun and interesting thing to do. Yeah. Because I've always enjoyed learning new things and, and learning new skills. And so um, I thought it would be a fun and different thing to do than I'd ever done before. And it was, and it turned out to be something that I actually really loved doing. That's sort of how I fell into cooking. I finished um, MIT with a, an architecture degree. After that summer, I was working part-time in restaurants all the rest of my time at MIT, and then I went straight into it full-time after school, after college. How fortuitous that you would show up and there'd be a line cook job opening and <laughs> and that you would end up in a career in the food industry. My my career has a, has a lot of sort of fortunate accidents. You know, I consider myself extremely lucky, but you know, I but it's also one of those sort of like you you know, you make your own luck things where it's like the more you the more chances you take and and the more you're willing to learn new things and try new things the higher the likelihood that you're going to stumble on something that you enjoy. Another guest whose career took unexpected turns was Chuck Hermes, Bitstream and Clockwork founder. In episode 104, I asked him about an early crossroad in his career when he started working for Prince at Paisley Park Studios. So at the same time that I started working at Paisley Park, I enrolled at MCAD. As I was doing my night reception duties, at Paisley, I had a lot of time and used that time to, to do my artwork and, and my schoolwork. And, you know, people around the studio recognized what I was doing and started assigning me tasks, little design tasks around the studio, which uh, over time I moved from the night receptionist position to being hired within the same building by Warner Brothers, who was, you know, the, the Prince's record company and the record company affiliated with Paisley Park Records. So I went from night receptionist to working as a or administrative assistant at Paisley Park Records, which was a Warner Brothers company. And there I did a lot of work on kind of liaison between uh, Paisley Park and Prince and the artists and Warner Brothers art department. Um, so that's how I kind of transitioned into um, kind of the the art production side of the business. And then it just kind of went on from there where Prince at that time, all of the record covers, all of the artwork, pretty much everything was done through Warner Brothers. So any of those cover designs were designers that worked for Warner Brothers, you know, on one of the coasts. And then he used a lot of people locally and regionally for things like tour sets and tour graphics and, you know, just all of this other stuff that he was doing. But officially, there was never an art department at Paisley. It just was freelancers coming in to do this and that. Um, and then depending on what was going on, like the Graffiti Bridge, the movie, was uh, just wrapping up the, the sets. They were just kind of taking the sets down on that when I started working there. And so there were a bunch of designers and freelancers that were working on that. But once that project was over, they dispersed. And, and there was, you know, uh, this, this gap at Paisley of, I didn't, I, I, what I, the question I asked was, do you realize that we can do a lot of what you're sourcing out in-house here? And at that point, they said, no, we didn't realize that. So why don't you uh, take on the task of building an art department here? What a wonderful assignment to build a department for Prince. Yes, and I was grossly underqualified, uh, which was okay, I guess. Um, 
you know, being just having started school. And then ultimately I dropped out of school because I had this opportunity to take this role at Paisley Park or be a student. I couldn't do both at that time. Continuing on the topic of career paths and what often inspires people to find and follow a dream, in episode 97, I spoke with Rob Dalton. Rob is president of Dalton Brand Catalyst, and I asked him what inspired him to pursue advertising and marketing. I love this question because it gives me a chance to honor somebody. Um, I, I, I was not a great student throughout my school career, and about the time I was going to graduate from Southwest High School in, in Minneapolis, um, my prospects were pretty grim because uh, I was not really college material. But basically across the board, pretty bad grades. I got good grades in English and in art. And I loved playing guitar with my friends. And, you know, life was good. It's just that I wasn't on my way to a career that would probably be above minimum wage. About a month before graduation, my English teacher, Sarah Sexton, started the class with a series of questions. And I can't remember them verbatim, of course, because that was many, many years ago, but she would say stuff like, who thinks that they would love to paint a soup can and become famous for that? Or who thinks they would like to create the next Pink Floyd album or After the Gold Rush? And a bunch of hands go up. And who would like to author the next Breakfast of Champions or, you know, pick a novel from that era. And more hands went up. And who would like to be, you know, the, the coolest photographer in the world? Who would love to make movies? Who wants to make the next Godfather? And she got everybody in that room raising their hands, including me. And she said... All of those things, you can't all be Neil Young and you know, all these Ansel Adams and Andy Warhol, because that's not, those are crazy long odds. But if you raised your hand and you want to do those creative endeavors, you could go into advertising. And that was a life-changing sentence for me, where I had no place to go after high school. And that sentence gave me this idea that, you know what, I love all of the things, all the creative things she was talking about, but back in 1973, that wasn't what colleges were looking for, I'll put it that way. And I went to a technical college that happened to have like one more opening um, and started just a couple weeks later. A couple weeks after graduation, I was back in school learning to be an ad guy. And so I, I didn't think about it growing up, but that moment where Sarah Sexton sort of brought these questions to the, to the table, it was like, oh, I absolutely have a place in this world. It's just that I'm, I'm, I'm a, sort of a born to be a creative. Like I say, it changed my life. What kind of art were you interested in at the time? I really did love pop art. And I, I wasn't an art student per se, but I would say that, and again, for those of your uh, listeners who are a little older, we as high school kids would collect album covers and basically, I mean, you know, a lot of my friends have framed album covers on their walls, but so much of my ex exposure to art was through music and through those album covers. 
Yet another interesting career path led episode 106 guest Mary Jo Hoffman to transform herself from an aerospace engineer to an artist. Mary Jo had a successful career at Honeywell when the company was purchased by Allied Signal. That soon set her on a new path. When I left Honeywell, that, the, another thing happened. By then, Allied had bought Honeywell, and Allied Signal's corporate headquarters were in Morristown, New Jersey. And I remember flying out to, to there. I had to fly out there all the time. And a, 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 like an executive HR person called me aside and said, by the way, sort of enjoy this position now because this is the last position you'll have where you get to call the shots. After this, you're married to the company. What? They literally said that. That's awful. And I, I came home from that trip and I said, I'm not married to Honeywell. I'm married to you, Steve. You know, I'm married to my husband. Like, I like my job. I'm a hard worker, but I am not married to Honeywell. I'm married to my family, you know? And it was the wrong thing to say to me at that moment. So I, I leave I leave Honeywell, and they they let me leave, and you know I I, I kind of leave for good. I don't harbor any intention of going back. And then my husband, just like the fertility doctor predicted, we I got pregnant right away, and we had our son. And yes, she was right. And um, so now I'm a stay at home mom with two kids, and um, but used to working full time. And my husband had been the stay-at-home dad with our, our with our daughter, and we sort of we 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 like to say we high-fived and switched roles, which is what we did. But of course, that transition took like over five years, right? I mean, he had only been working part-time, and then he ramped up to full-time. And I don't think we got parity in like financial. You know, it was a step back financially for me to quit working, obviously, and that didn't that didn't. Um, that did, you know, we didn't get parity for a long time after that. But, um, but I, you know, where I went with that story about you're going to be married to Honeywell. I remember thinking, no, I want a life. I don't want a career. Right. I mean, I don't, at the end of the day, I want to have had a rich life, not necessarily just a rich career. And so I, you know, again, I went into math and science because I was good at it not because it was necessarily a burning passion. And what we're both passionate about was creativity. So he's a writer. And I, at the, it was, you know, I would say now I'm a visual artist and my current primary medium is photography. So I was, you know, more into visual arts. He was into writing and, and those were um, always sort of hobbies, but we always dreamed of an early retirement where we could do that more full time. And that would be the thing that we carry then that you don't have to stop doing someday because it, you can be in, you can be a writer when you're 80. You know what I mean? But it's hard to be a software engineer when you're 80. So um, when, when I quit work um, and became a full-time mom and it, those first years of children are just overwhelming. And then <laughs> You know, after like three or four years, I, it was when my son went into um, preschool. Um, I remember picking my head up and saying, okay, what do I want to do now? And I'd always wanted to do visual art. And what I happened to be best at, at it was photography. Photography. <laughs> 
The 10-7 podcast turned into a dance party for episode 107 when Gavin King, also known as DJ Aphrodite, brought us into his creative process for how he developed his unique and influential sound. You, you've been referred to as one of the founding fathers of Jump Up Jungle. And to me, I know what jungle is. I know what the niche of Jump Up is. It's what originally got me hooked on jungle and drum and bass. It's been a lifelong obsession for me. For those of our listeners who, who don't know what it is, could you give us a description of what it is and maybe play a sample, something that's quintessentially Jump Up? Okay, so... In about 1996, uh, there were uh, there was a lot of accelerated breakbeats going on, and for me, it was all a bit complex. And you dance to the bassline, and then I preferred this sound of stricter rhythms. Uh, so the dum I love that because that was more danceable. And when I add rolling bass lines and kind of wobbly sounds to that, that became known as Jump Up. I don't know why it became Jump Up. Um, I don't even know who coined the phrase, but it, if it makes you jump up and dance, then it's a good thing. It, exactly. It's happy and uplifting. That's what I always thought. It made you jump up. <laughs> a good track to start off and show that would be King of the Beats. You say a one for the trouble, two for the time. Oh, come on, y'all. Come Carried away listening to that now. <laughs> That's okay. Um, actually, that leads into a good question for me. How do you listen to your own music? I mean, you make it all the time. How does the music you make make you feel? If I can make music that makes me dance, um, then the likelihood is it's going to make others dance around too. Uh, so, if, if my mission is I want to make something that I'm really happy with and I want to DJ and I want to play. If when I'm making it, I come to a moment where I'm dancing around the studio like a NASA, then then that's a pretty good sign. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's your um, that's your surefire way of knowing it. Others will like it, and you know what? I think I agree with you. Of course, heading out to clubs and dancing was a pipe dream for most of 2020, when the defining event was the COVID-19 pandemic. Early in the year. As the virus started to sweep across the country, it became clear that everything had to change. One area that had to adapt quickly was business, as the pandemic forced companies to adopt new work models. At 10.7, we were lucky. We transitioned to a distributed workplace in 2017, so the pandemic didn't change our model, but many companies had to learn on the fly. In episode 88, we interviewed Claire Liu, CEO of Know Your Team, one of our favorite products at 10.7. She discussed how leaders needed to adapt 
to create more productive remote work environments? I think it's encouraging that it's more widely adopted just because of the forcing function. I think one of the things that will be interesting or that I've sort of watched is also the way leadership styles and management styles sort of adapt in that context as well. And so, for example, one of the biggest reactions that often happen, unfortunately, in teams that go remote quite quickly is that oftentimes the leader, because they're not used to remote work, they get a little anxious about, well, are people working? And so as a result, they start micromanaging a bit more. They ask for status or they, you know, hold status meeting, update meetings every, uh, you know, every day, or they ping people on Slack. Hey, you know, what's going on with this? All the incessantly, uh, you know, they put up more pressure. There was an article in Bloomberg that was published uh, recently about how it reported bosses buying uh, panic buying spy software, right? So there's just this emphasis on tracking and surveillance. So it's, I think the opportunity for remote work to actually work well is there. And then I think the actual sort of practice of it, I mean, that's where we really feel with Know Your Team. And it's a huge part of why we have the tool and all of our resources is to help make sure that just because you're now remote doesn't mean that your actual management practices get better in any way. And in sometimes, in some cases, remote work can actually bring out the worst in us and leaders and exacerbate negative habits that we have. I wrote an article on this recently where I go a lot deeper on that, but it's just something I've been noticing. And and yeah, and I think for folks who are listening, if you are a manager who's recently become remote and you know, you're listening to me and you're like, well, Claire, you know, how do you know if people are working? Like, that's what I'm trying to figure out, right? Trust. Ooh, say that one more time, Yvonne. What was that? Trust. Yeah. It's trust. Exactly. You hire people to do a job and a big part of your role as a leader is to trust them to do it. Exactly. Exactly. We're all adults, right? Right. And, And you have to help them along the way, I'm sure, at times and coach folks and make expectations clear. And there's a lot of things that you can do to create an environment for people to do the work. There's a lot of research that's been shown the more surveillance and tracking that you try to do, the worse that that actual outcome is. As the cases skyrocketed, COVID upended our lives our economy, and unfortunately, the virus became a driver of even more political divide in our nation. In episode 102, South African journalist, political analyst, and author Gareth Van Onselen provided his perspective on how coronavirus put a spotlight on the growing political extremism in the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about the mask or the, those people who deny that masks do anything. The thing that's interesting about them is, so so let's accept for the sake of argument that that masks don't do anything, and it's all a giant mistake, and, and it was a waste of people's time to wear masks. In terms of them actually preventing the disease spreading, let, let's say that's the argument, and let's say we agree with it. Well, would there be any benefit to a mask outside of that? And I think there are, behavioral benefits that are that are indisputable i mean for one it tops it stops you touching your nose and your face because there's there is a barrier there secondly it makes you aware that there is a problem and you need to distance yourself from other people otherwise why would you have this barrier over your mouth Um, and those are quite profound impacts on the way people behave so 
you know, even if this thing had no material benefits, and, and I believe that it does, you know, it literally is a physical barrier, so it must to some degree or other stop something passing between two people. It has behavioral benefits, which are very important in a pandemic, uh, and that signal to people internally that there is a problem, that I need to be aware of how close I am to another person, about touching myself. Uh, you know, it, it, it regulates behavior and, and has a whole lot of benefits in that regard. That's a good point. Uh, it, it's not just that it might help you avoid spreading the virus or getting the virus. It's that there are other benefits to it as well. Yeah, I, I I'm just still flummoxed and flabbergasted that there um, is no shared reality here, no shared acceptance. And I think that's the greatest problem that we're going to face. Should there be a change in the administration and even if there isn't a change in the administration, there is no shared reality. And I like, I don't know what we can do to get there. And I, I'm, you know, I'm open to hearing what you think. The this thing about shared realities, you have to be a bit careful with them because I mean, I think there've always been, you can use the word two realities or two interpretations of, of what's best for America in, in broad terms, you know, a kind of Republican and, democratic worldview. I mean, I think even those two worldviews have, have fractured somewhat over the last uh, five or 10 years or so. But in broad terms, it's a kind of universal truth that for you know a very long period of time, there've been these two dominant worldviews in America. I think the problem in the current environment is the degree to which people have hunkered down in each worldview. They've become far more fundamental and it's illustrated by the degree to which uh, I think the left has become quite hysterical at the extremes and the right, you know, from the Tea Party through to Trump through to whatever has, has become quite extreme on, on, on its far side. And both of these factions are having a powerful influence on the worldviews of, of the broader democratic and republican views. There doesn't seem to be a moderate center anymore. I mean, you know, a president like Roosevelt he had a you know a very moderate centrist view um and uh, that kind of president is not really possible in america at the moment um you've got to belong to one camp or the other and your views have got to be fairly extremely aligned with that camp and and i think that is the problem is that the kind of middle ground not middle in in neutral just a, a kind of area where moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans could meet has, has been eradicated and it's just far more fundamental on both sides now. The division in our nation in 2020 was, in part, driven by a growing distrust of science, facts, and quite frankly, reality. In one troubling development, many people started to distrust the news media despite the fact that the fourth estate is the foundation of our democracy. In episode 99, Bob Collins, creator of the Newscut blog and former senior news editor at Minnesota Public Radio, discussed how the idea of fake news spurred distrust and division in the United States. Well, it's a little complicated. I don't think we saw or could have seen the extent to which this cult of denial has been created. You know, recall back in when, you know, we were at radio camp, how we were going to give everybody a voice. 
And we were going to take the patriarchy away from the news gathering process. And we made a fundamental, uh, fatal flaw in our thinking, which was everybody deserved a voice. What we ended up doing was giving a voice to this dark side of ourselves. And in so doing, we allowed people to see that they were not alone in their dark thinking. And uh, in a way, we helped them organize and created this, frankly, monster to democracy, I think, has has really threatens us in ways that we never anticipated. But I think it all goes back to giving people that voice. Enabling. Enabling. And of course, they were very good at drowning out all of those voices. I Right up until the last minute at NPR, I was convinced that a good comment section was possible. Uh, but right near the end, I realized it wasn't. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? But that's where it all started. And now, of course, it's migrated onto other platforms, yeah. What do you think we can do? What should we be doing to bring back the trust in journalism? I think we have to recognize that we are in an age that all of the old norms and the established principles no longer apply. So you have a media wants to build up this trust by not having a or at least giving away that they have a dog in the fight. Well, the fight now is literally the survival of democracy. And I think it's okay to have a dog in that fight. And I think it's okay for the media to lead that fight. And it's, for the most part, not willing to do that. I think so, too. It holds on to this concept of, and this is a word I've always hated, objectivity. Because I think some of the values of Murrow, who is, let's face it, the godfather of journalism, I think a lot of that got corrupted somewhere along the line that has prevented people in the news business from leading that defense of de- what I call the defense of democracy. And so you, that's how you end up with whataboutism and you know, this balance thing where you give the dark side a voice as if it has, uh, yeah, as if it has a a legitimate uh, right and you amplify this cult of darkness. Um, So until that changes, and maybe we're seeing a little bit of that now, uh, but I think too often uh, media organizations have just backed away any time that anybody yells bias, or especially liberal bias in the case of public radio, and have, have really um, ignored their, their true responsibility you know, because they just don't want to make anybody angry. One of the goals of our podcast is to not only call out interesting issues, but also to suggest possible solutions. In episode 98, Waldo Jaquith an open government technologist offered some thoughts about how open source software could be a driver for better, more efficient government and could help restore our faith in our elections. One really important argument for open source is is what you just made, which is if we the taxpayers are paying for something, we should own it. And in fact, as a matter of law, any work of government is in the public domain. So my argument for open source to federal agencies is because you're legally required to. 
That's why. That seems easy. But there's a second argument that requires a little more time to argue for than one sentence, but I think it's also really important that when government makes their work open source and they make it clear up front to the vendors who will be developing it that it's going to be open source, incentives change completely. I, I can tell you, having worked on developing software, that I know nobody would ever look at the source code to, I don't really care how great it is. Like, does it work pretty well? Cool, I'm happy. Um, on an organizational-wide level, you're not going to put your best and brightest on those projects. But if it's open source, if every commit is on GitHub, well, now you care. Because a lot of these smaller shops, they get to show screenshots of their work. But often what they're producing never sees the light of day in a public sense. Their clients might rely on it every day. Maybe there's some HTML the public can see in their browsers, but like that's it. And so to be able to say, no, look, you can actually see a product we've built, all the source, all of our work, it's in the public, that becomes a powerful sales tool. But there's another layer in which this is useful. And that is the employees you're gonna put on those projects. You want the work to look good, so you need your best developers on that. And for those developers, for the, often for the first time in their lives, they have a public portfolio of work that they can point to and say, these commits are mine. This work I did on this project that you can see on GitHub, even while I'm building it, is mine. So when they go to get another job or a promotion or whatever, they finally have a portfolio of their work to point to. And so the incentives for these employees change too, where they want to be doing their very best work because it's finally a chance to prove how good they are. And the result of this is that the work that government gets is really excellent because everybody's incentives are aligned. And that's so important. Just thinking about how public software changes the perspective and the sales and the marketing of individuals and companies leads me to think about the upcoming election and the voting machines that we have and the fact that they are so black boxed and so closed source. And I'm wondering out loud now what that would look like if there was a federal mandate that all software in, in voting machines was open source. First of all, from a legal perspective, is that even possible? Like, can we do that? Oh, yes. Yeah, so um, w we could. Uh, the argument that um, some activists would make is that, look, voting is ultimately up to the states, and the federal government has no say over that. The thing is, the federal government does have say and enforces all kinds of regulations about voting. So that's not entirely true. But also, that's often just solved through funding. Uh, when the Help America Vote Act passed almost 20 years ago now, HAVA provided a great deal of funding to modernize election equipment, but only if you complied with the federal standards. So an easy solution there is, uh, and it really even better than an unfunded mandate, is to say, hey, uh, everybody has to upgrade their voting software. Good news, we have produced the software that it can run. So you have to use this software. However, we're going to provide the funding, say, a, you know, a one-to-one -one match or a nine-to-one -one match, whatever, somewhere in that range, to, to states. Work with any hardware vendor you want, but they have to meet the following standards. And of course, they have to use our open source software. So that way, the private sector continues to get the money they're accustomed to getting, uh, which otherwise would cause them to protest mightily. And uh, uh, you wind up with national standards. And if some state says, well, we're just not going to take any federal funding for our election equipment because we're really committed to closed source for some reason. I mean, they can do that, but they're not likely to do that. And certainly some future iteration of their board of elections would decide 
that was dumb. We've passed up free money. Let's, let's take them up on that. So I think there's a range from just flat out mandating it all the way to tying it to funding requirements. And oh, I, I would love, love to have, heck, I'd love to work on that project. Finally, in episode 101, we took on the very complex problem of criminal justice reform, speaking with Clementine Jacoby, executive director of Recidivis, a nonprofit that's building a technical foundation to help improve the criminal justice system. Clementine discussed how data could help unlock new approaches and initiatives that would make our system more equitable and effective. The thing that the data clearly illustrates, I think, is that to make a huge dent in this problem, like to make the kind of progress we're talking about, we need to invest money that we will save by incarcerating fewer people in drug treatment and mental wellness and in underserved communities, which by the way, you can see in the data, right? Like today, if you are a black man without a GED, you're more likely to be behind bars than employed. And we can see in the data which communities were underfunding, which communities are disenfranchised and where we need to invest. And so I think that's that's one thing that the data makes very clear is that we're using prisons to solve problems that would be better solved, more cheaply solved, more equitably solved, all of these things in the community. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a solution that people can really rally behind. There's something very important about that that I think you're clearly seeing in the public narrative right now. We, we want to see investment away from our justice system into the communities and into solving these problems earlier in the pipeline. So that's, I think, the biggest takeaway that the data shows. What do private jails and private systems have to do with the problem statement? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's the same problem statement. The private prison system is not as big as you might think. Most of the people we incarcerate are incarcerated not by the federal government and not by private prisons, but by states. And that's why we are focusing on states. And I think that it's an issue, but it's not the issue that we're tackling. The reason you have private prisons is because states contract to private prisons because they think that they can either produce better outcomes or incarcerate people for less money. And so to me, it feels like an extension of, of the same set of issues, which is that we don't have tools to optimize for uh, better outcomes. And we need those sort of across the private and the public system. But the public system, to me, is more important because it impacts more people. And so the only way we can fix this is by making public policy and laws that address people going into incarceration and also preventing people that have left incarceration to prevent them from going back into uh, incarceration. And what you're saying is the data is there and we need to make it more visible and use it to make these decisions a whole lot faster and a whole lot better. Yes. And I will add one thing, which is that we also need to recognize that in addition to making our prison system better, we also need to confront how hard it is in this country to recover from incarceration. Mm. Most people who go to prison will never be eligible for most jobs or housing or even things like food stamps that were literally designed for underserved and marginalized communities. They'll be five times as likely to be unemployed. They'll earn less money when they're working. 
and their kids will be six times more likely to enter the system. So we've created sort of a revolving door that oh many God. millions of people enter very young and then can never leave. And so if we want to really unwind this issue, we also need to get serious about reducing barriers to reentry, reducing contact in the first place, and also improving the system itself for the people who do get caught in it. It's not just the system, it's everything around it as well. Yeah. We should fix it all. And I think that's what you're trying to do. We're trying to do that. Yeah. Your website talks about a self-improving criminal justice system. What does that mean? For us, I think the main goal is that you should be able, as a person running a correction system, to set a goal, track your progress, and hit that goal. So right now, running a corrections department is very much like being a CEO of a company, but with like no way to measure profit and loss or like whether or not any of your launches worked. And so it's that basic sense that, you know, today we have 50 people with an enormous amount of responsibility running an $80 billion system with hundreds of thousands of employees incarcerating millions of people who don't have these tools. And so like, let's get them the tools. Let's get them the tools that they need to set a goal, see if they're tracking towards it. Let's get them the tools they need to evaluate upfront what impact a policy will have and then to follow up and see if that policy actually had that impact. And if it didn't, close the gap, right? So that's what we mean by a self-correcting system just giving them the ability to actively and proactively manage for the outcomes that we want to see as a citizenship and then report to us the progress on those things. Well, that's it for 2020. Before we finish, I do want to offer some words of gratitude. The 10-7 podcast is, of course, a team effort. So I want to be sure to thank everyone who helps produce and promote this show, including Roxanne, who provides all of our transcription services, Brian and Charlene, who helped with the descriptions, summaries, and social media promotion, and particularly Jonathan, the producer of the show, who makes the magic happen, handling all the scheduling, recording, editing, and mixing to bring you this podcast. Thank you. We couldn't do it without you. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning into the podcast and I'd like to ask you a small favor. It would be most appreciated if you could go to iTunes and give the 107 podcast a positive rating and review. Ratings play a huge role in helping people discover our podcast. We've got great shows in store for 2021, and we'd love to have even more people join in. Finally, if you have a second, do send us a message and tell us what you'd like to hear in the coming year. Or just send an email to say hi. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>